1968, in the Mexico City Olympics, the 26-mile marathon was won by an Ethiopian by the name of Maimo Waldi. He crossed the finish line around 6 o'clock in the evening. An hour later, the sun had gone down, the temperature had cooled considerably, only a few thousand spectators remained in the stands, when suddenly a lone figure appeared on the track. John Stephen Akwari wore the colors that day of Tanzania. His leg was bandaged. It was bloodied. You see, earlier in the race, Akwari had taken a nasty tumble. He was now limping around the track. The remaining crowd applauded Akwari when he ran his final lap. You see, John Stephen Akwari was the last person to finish the 1968 marathon. He was severely injured. There was no way he could have won a medal. And at the end of the race, an interviewer approached him and asked him, Why didn't you quit? You were bleeding. You know, there was no way for you to win a medal. Why did you run to the end? And Akwari's reply was classic. He answered the reporter. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start a race, but to finish a race. And this is God's word to you and me this morning. God doesn't send us out to merely start our race. God intends for us to finish our race. You see, people of influence finish tasks. They complete what they start. Noah finished a boat in time for a flood. Nehemiah finished rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Just before his execution, Paul wrote to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, people of influence are good finishers. They don't merely flirt with faithfulness, nor toy with it for a time. No, they are faithful to the end. You know, each week we've been moving through the book of Joshua, and we've been noting the habits of influential people. How do you become a person of influence? Well, you make preparation, and you seize opportunities, and you overcome limitations, and you settle your allegiances, and face your foes, and admit your failures, and, as we talked about last week, keep your promises. But people of influence also, they finish tasks. This morning, we'll study one more of God's amazing miracles And its sole purpose, mind you, was to enable the Israeli army to finish what they started. In fact, you'll find many of God's miracles in history and even in our lives today are designed to help His people complete what He has called them to do. You see, there were two key battles in the Hebrews' conquest of Canaan. The first was Israel's initial victory at Jericho. The second was Israel's decisive victory at Beth Horon, which we'll study today. Both victories were aided by God's supernatural intervention. In fact, the miraculous way that God won these battles convinced the Canaanite nations that, hey, they were doomed, that this wasn't going to be a fair fight. The one true God had chosen to fight for Israel. And if you think God used a bizarre battle plan to topple the walls of Jericho, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Whoa, Nellie, hold on to your hat. At Beth Horon, God flexes his muscles in a most extraordinary way. Well, let's begin here in chapter 10. Now, it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, 
and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities. And because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. The Gibeonites, they weren't wimps. They were mighty warriors. And yet they were afraid to tangle with Israel. They were no match for her God. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham. Hoham. Hum. He was kind of a boring guy. King of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Now, rather than just sit back and let Joshua pick off these nations one at a time, this Adonai Zedek, he wants to join forces with his neighbors. He wants to take the battle to Joshua. These kings form a coalition army to fight against the Israelis. And, and, and here's how my twisted mind works. How many kings now join forces? How many? Five, right. Five guys are about to become dead meat. You, you get it? Five guys and dead meat. I mean, here's the original five guys, right? Man, I love those five guy burgers. Just a little sidetrack here. Just, just how my mind works. Verse five. Therefore, the five guys of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it. Remember, the city of Gibeon was strategic in that it was middle ground between north and south. Gibeon was sort of the Mason-Dixon line in Canaan. You know, if these five coalition kings could take back Gibeon, this would be a huge victory for them. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal. Remember, Gilgal was Israel's headquarters. It was down on the west bank of the Jordan River. We read last week how that the Gibeonites had made a peace treaty with Israel. Now they run to Joshua for help. They say, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal. Now as we've mentioned before, west of Gilgal, it goes uphill. The terrain starts going uphill toward the mountains. The terrain rises from the river basin to the central highlands. So Joshua ascended. You know, you go west of Gilgal, you start to ascend. He ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. The five guys are about to become dead meat. Verse 9. Now Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Joshua takes his troops on a nighttime march. And here's where a little geography lesson is going to help us. From Gilgal to Ai, it's about 15 miles, but it's all uphill. Gilgal is 900 feet below sea level. Ai is in the mountains 2,600 feet above sea level. It's a 3,500-mile climb from Gilgal to Ai. Now, keep tracking west of of Gibeon, and you'll know, and you, uh, west of Ai, and you'll notice Gibeon. It's about five or six miles southwest of Ai. 
But now you're going downhill. Once you get to Gibeon, you're on the other side of the mountain. You're sloping down now, going westward toward the coast. The valley just below Gibeon was called the Valley of Beth Horon. And there was only one opening to the valley. It was further south. The Valley of Beth Horon ran perpendicular with a valley called Ajalon. The Valley of Ajalon. Now Joshua's reconnaissance tells him that these coalition kings, they've come up from the south and they're now camping their combined armies in the Valley of Beth Horon. So this is what Joshua does. Joshua pushes his troops through the night. The Israelis, they march hard for 12 hours. This is a 20-mile climb. And at dawn, Israel is strategically positioned to launch a surprise attack against Adonai Zedek and the five guys. When the sun comes up, the rumble goes down. And it really wasn't much of a fight. Notice verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekah and Machedah. Machedah was nearly 30 miles south of Gibeon where the battle began. Apparently, these Canaanites were on the run. They were scattering as far south as Machedah. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Notice the Lord supernaturally joins the battle with a supernatural airstrike. He bombs the Amorites with large hailstones, we're told. Verse 11, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. The route was on. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Now understand what's happening. The ancient Hebrews, they weren't on daylight savings time, all right? The route was on, but the sun was setting. The army of Israel was running out of daylight. And Joshua wants to finish this job for influential people, finish tasks. And besides, Joshua is concerned that under the cover of darkness, these Amorites might slip away. He doesn't want to have to fight them twice. He's got them on the ropes, and he needs to go for the knockout punch. Joshua needs to finish the mop up. His goal is to complete the task. But somehow, he's going to need a couple of more hours of daylight to do so. And so Joshua prays a prayer so bold and so daring, I doubt any of us would even think to pray it. In verse 12, he says, Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And we're told what happened in verse 13. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. God did exactly, exactly what Joshua had asked him. He gave Israel 24 extra hours of uninterrupted daylight to finish the job. 
Let this miracle prove once and for all that there is no limit to the extent that God will go to help his people defeat their enemies and finish their mission. God wants us to live lives of victory over sin and over temptation and over worry and over fear. And if we ask him and if we trust him, God will do whatever it takes to give us that opportunity and afford us the tools we need to complete that work. Now before we move on, let's make a few observations concerning this miracle. First of all, don't get confused here by the vernacular. The writer is using what we call the language of observation. He describes events as they appear. You know, we do this whenever we talk of a sunrise or a sunset. We don't mean that the sun literally rises over the horizon. No, the earth is spinning around the sun, not vice versa. Our planet's rotation makes the sun seem as or appear as if it rises. Evidently, in Joshua's day, something occurred in the heavens that tinkered with the earth's rotation. Somehow, the spinning planet of planet earth grinded to a halt. This obviously required some kind of global event of cataclysmic proportions. It's interesting that even Joshua suspected that his future readers would have a perplexing time believing this miracle. Notice here in verse 13, Joshua appeals to an ancient extra-biblical source to corroborate what the Bible is going to say here. He says, is this not written in the book of Jasher? I'm giving you another source in case you don't believe me. This was also written in the book of Jasher. We no longer have that book, but obviously it corroborated the biblical account. Now, how this miracle occurred, we're not sure. But that a miracle occurred is a matter of history. Did you know that almost every ancient culture refers to either a long day or a long night? The Chinese speak of a long day. The Aztecs of Mexico, the Choctaw Indians, the Peruvian Indians all report on a long night. That this miracle occurred is history, but how it occurred is more mystery. Certainly God could have reached out his hand and slowed down the rotation of the planet. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. If God created them, then he can alter or manipulate them as he pleases. There are though some respected scientists who've posed astronomical explanations for Joshua's long day. For example, Emmanuel Velikovsky. He was a colleague of Albert Einstein. He wrote a book entitled Worlds in Collision. It's a great book. In his book, Velikovsky believes that a comet passed through the Earth's atmosphere in the midst of this battle. The comet tilted the Earth's axis, accounting for the long day. Its tail also pummeled the Earth with a shower of asteroids, or what our text refers to as hailstones. In other words, it was a miracle of divine timing. God steered the trajectory of a comet in answer to Joshua's prayer. There's another possibility. There's a book by a NASA scientist by the name of Donald Wesley Patton. It's called Catastrophism in the Old Testament. It suggests that the earth was a victim of a close encounter with the planet Mars. Patton's computer models show that around the time of Joshua... Mars passed by the earth at a distance of about 28,000 miles. Now, the closest the moon ever gets to the earth is 221,463 miles. That makes 28,000 miles mere spitting distance. 
A close flyby may have affected the Earth's rotation. All kinds of global disasters would have taken place, just like the hailstones in Beth Horon. Patton's theory may also explain why the ancient cultures worshipped planets that they could barely see. Have you ever wondered why? In fact, the city of Rome was dedicated to the planet Mars. There's so much speculation we could embark on. Like I say, how it happened is mystery, but that it happened is history. It's in the Bible. Joshua reports it again here in verses 13 and 14. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 15, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. And I'll bet you never again did Joshua doubt God's willingness to give him whatever was necessary to finish what he started. And the miracle at Beth Horon should prove the same to us. That our God is faithful to the finish. This means there's no reason God's work should be left undone or half done in your life. God's work involves miracles. God will perform miracles to see that his tasks are completed in your life. If restoration in your life has been left unfinished, if relationships have only partially been repaired, if sin is festering and total victory remains elusive, if loose ends kind of dangle in your life and rob you of your joy, if half-finished victories remain undone, if your marriage and your family have only been reunited halfway, if your commitments have only engaged a half-heartedness, it's not God's fault. Our God is a finishing God. Hebrews 12 verse 2 refers to Jesus as the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is both the starting pitcher and he's the closer. He begins the game and he closes the deal. Over the valley of Ajalon, our God proved just how far he is willing to go to finish the work he wants to do in us and through us. God intends for you and I to go the distance He wants us to finish the task and complete his purposes. And miracle power is available to us if we'll trust him and if we'll ask him. Hey, if God can stretch time and daylight, he can stretch patience and budgets and paychecks and endurance and tolerance. You see, people of influence are not just starters like Jesus. They are finishers. Hey, don't pull up before the race is over. You can run 100 yards in world record time, but it doesn't matter if the race is a mile long. Victory goes to the person who finishes. People of influence finish what they start. Hey, we're not quite done with our text. Let me read to you a couple of more selections. Chapter 10, verse 20. We'll put them up on the big screen. Then it happened, while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, (coughs) till they had finished, notice, till they had finished, 
Notice Israel fights until the job is finished. In the next few verses, Joshua executes the five guys who started this conflict. And then he kills the king of Machedah who harbored his enemies. Notice verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Machedah and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it. He let none remain. Notice this. As brutal as it sounds, Joshua finished the job. This was war, and he left no loose ends. Verse 40 sums up Israel's southern conquest. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country in the south, and the lowland, and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining. Notice again the thoroughness of the job. Joshua completed God's orders. In chapter 11, the Israeli army marches north this time and fights a formidable army. Jabin, king of Hazor, is a powerful ruler with a strong cavalry. Joshua launches a surprise attack. He wins a decisive victory. And guess what gets reported in verse 8? The Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel until they left none of them remaining. Notice, every time Joshua has a task to do, a foe to defeat, he makes sure that he completes God's orders before he moves on to the next task. He didn't slay the enemy all at once. Joshua's faithfulness was a long line of individual completions. He finished A, then he went to B. He finished B, then he went to C. But he didn't move on until the task at hand was done, was finished. Joshua made finishing tasks and completing orders his habitual activity. Now you see, some of you face some colossal challenges. I mean, you're rebuilding a life that has been ravished and wrecked by addiction. You're putting the pieces back together to a marriage that's fallen apart. You're trying to get out of debt, and you've got a mountain of it. You're trying to pay for your kid's college. And it's just difficult to see how this will ever be finished. You know, I heard of a football coach who asked his players to give him six seconds. The average football play lasts six seconds. The coach doesn't ask for 60 minutes of all-out effort, the length of a game. He tells his players, just give me six seconds. You're hurting. You're tired. You're depleted. You can't fathom lasting 60 minutes. That's okay. God says, just finish the next six seconds. You know, some tasks aren't finished all at once. They're completed in stages or in increments. You finish six seconds at a time. After Joshua conquered Jabin and burned Hazor, the northern cities now topple like dominoes. And chapter 11, verse 15, records the sum total of Joshua's efforts. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Each completion added up until it was said he left nothing undone of all that he had been commanded. Joshua was successful because he was a great finisher. And here's my question to you this morning. Have you left anything undone? You know, some of us are notorious for leaving unfinished projects around the house. You you could take me on a tour. Well, you see that? I plan to do that soon. Or when I get the money or when I get the time, we're going to finish this. Or, Or, you know, I just started that project, but... 
You know, there's an actual art museum in Florence, Italy, that's dedicated to Michelangelo's unfinished works. I mean, the whole museum's full of incomplete projects. It's like my garage. Some people are notorious for starting stuff they just don't finish. And it's sad and tragic, but the Bible contains as many examples of people who didn't finish well as it does people who were good finishers. David's early faith and courage was tainted by his sin with Bathsheba. The wisdom of Solomon didn't save him from later flirtations with idolatry. Paul's friend, Demas, remember, forsook him after he got too attached to this world. You see, a promising start doesn't guarantee a faithful finish. Here's one way to measure a person. How often did he or she finish what they started? You see, it's a weak resume that only lists good intentions. How many of your visions and goals and good deeds have never materialized? It's not what you start that counts. It's what you finish. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate finisher, is he not? I love Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. There Paul writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What Jesus starts, he finishes. Our Lord never abandons a project in midstream. You know, we wonder sometimes if we'll make it. But unlike some of us, Jesus doesn't have a garage full of projects that he started but never finished. Rest assured, if you belong to Jesus, the work he wants to do in you, he will see it to completion. And Jesus wants his followers to be like him. To develop that same follow-through, that same commitment, that same persistence. You know, when a football player makes a tackle, his coach will holler, lock him up, lock him up. The art of tackling is to make a hard hit. And then after the impact, get your arms around the runner so that you can steer his momentum to the ground. The idea is to lock him up so he doesn't spin out and elude the tackle. And this is the idea we should carry when we serve the Lord. Like a tackler, we can have a great initial impact. But if we don't then lock it up and steer the momentum, the desired results can bounce off and can elude us. Leave leave nothing undone. Endure to the end. Finish the drill. Oh my, that was the Bulldogs motto a few years ago. They had that motto, finish the drill. Evidently, the summer's off-season training and all had involved a brutal exercise they called mat drills. And when they were doing these mat drills, the players would encourage each other by, by chanting, finish the drill, finish the drill. And it carried over into the season. That year, Georgia had some team goals, and they refused to give up, and they kept at it until they finished the drill. I know you Tech fans won't appreciate that, but... It was what it was. At Calvary Chapel, we also have some team goals. We really do. Each week we teach God's word. And we disciple believers in their faith. And we love our community. And we seek to build a strong church. And God has called us to finish the drill. And I believe he will even work miracles to help us finish what he started. I'm sure there are also some personal targets that God has for your life. 
He wants you to achieve some specific objectives. Your goals may be educational or relational or vocational. We, we all have some spiritual aspirations that God has laid on our hearts. Are you on track? Or have you left a few things undone and unfinished? Once there was a little boy, he received a yellow parakeet for his birthday. He was so proud of this parakeet. In fact, he was painting the cage where he kept the parakeet with a, with a fresh coat of varnish. When he reached inside, though, to remove the bird, tragically, the little bird slipped out of his hand and fell into the bucket of varnish. The bird drowned. The little boy was so upset. His, his little bird was dead. He was sobbing. And that's when his older brother came and put his arm around him and comforted him, only like a big brother can. He said, he said cheer up, little buddy. At least your bird had a good finish. You know, I hope that when I cross life's finish line, you can say of me, like that kid said of his parakeet, well, at least old Sandy had a good finish. A person of influence understands that life is a race, and the point of a race is to finish, and to finish well. Never forget that a saving faith is a faith that finishes. When I was 22 years old, I dropped out of college to start a church. This one. I only had 11 courses left to complete my degree. But I wanted to be a pastor. I mean, what does a pastor need with a degree in business administration? At 22, school seemed like a waste of time and money and effort to me. But it was a few years later when God spoke to my heart. Sandy, how can you tell a teenager to stay in school if you quit yourself? And yet it wasn't the degree that was important. It was, it was this idea of me finishing what I'd started. I needed to finish the drill. I went back to school. I remember my last semester at Georgia State. I worked in a warehouse to feed my family. I pastored the church. I took three courses that semester. You know, I helped Kathy raise a newborn, Zach. In that same semester, we had a baby girl, Natalie. But you know what? I finished. And I learned the value that God places on finishing what we start. When God created the universe, it took him six days to finish the job. The creator left nothing undone. His creation was total and complete. You know, since the beginning, God has added nothing new to his creation. No new space, no new matter. The raw ingredients that make up the universe were there from the start. We mold our world. Only God creates. And then on the seventh day, God celebrated a job well done. His work was finished. There was nothing else to be done except rest from his labor. And God's rest was not for him alone. Who did God invite to join him in his rest? Well, the man and the woman were created on day six. Do you know that means our first full day of existence was a day of rest? Home for us is God's finished work. This is why one of the best feelings a human being will ever experience is the satisfaction of a job well done. You see, finished tasks echo through the ages God's seventh-day rest. This is why finishing anything pleases us so. At a root level, we are fulfilling God's image in us. 
And if you need more inspiration to be a good finisher, I have one more example for you this morning. Who can forget the final words of our Lord Jesus on the cross? Exhausted and wounded and beaten and bleeding and dying and suspended from nails driven in his hands and in his feet, Jesus cried out from the cross, It is finished. The finishing touches were applied to the work of salvation. On the cross, all that needed to be done was completed. You see, a thread of redemption had weaved its way throughout the Old Testament. The animal skins that covered Adam's nakedness. Abraham's faith in God's promise. Judaism's sacrifices and Passover. The promise of David of a Messiah. Israel's, I mean, Isaiah's suffering servant. The new covenant to Ezekiel. But all these promises and all these prophecies, they culminated in three wonderful words. It is finished. The knot on that thread of redemption was tied that day. You see, Jesus knows something about finishing the drill. Whatever it takes to help you finish, Jesus will supply. Need the sun and moon to stand still? At the cross, all heaven stood still while God's Son died in your place. Jesus finished his race. and Because he has, we have access to his power and his grace and his forgiveness. All that's needed for us to finish our race. Today, Jesus wants you and me to follow in his footsteps and be faithful finishers. Never forget, people of influence finish tasks. Father, thank you for your love for us and for the good word this morning. Lord, may we take it and apply it to our hearts and be obedient to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.